Good afternoon, brethren. Glad to see so many of you here. This is a very good attendance today. And of course, it's an absolutely beautiful day for January. That's supposed to be our coldest month and our worst month. And it's just like a a late spring day rather than a midwinter day. Anyway, we're grateful for that. The work is continuing to grow, as most of you know, and we're very grateful for the things that are being done and that God is doing through us, and we do have much to be thankful for in that way, and most of you being around headquarters know that. We appreciate it very much. But brethren, there are many trials ahead, and I know all of you realize that. We see that just yesterday, the Standard and Poor Agency downgraded the debt of a whole bunch of nations over in Europe, Austria, Italy, Spain, and one or two others altogether, about eight nations. The European Union is in convulsions and may completely come apart. And if it comes apart, it will be rebuilt on a different foundation, which will probably result in the beast coming together in a way it has not done before. Our own nation, of course, is in terrible trouble, and the politicians try to say everything's all right. But as most of you know, President Obama is now asking for the debt ceiling to be raised once again $1.2 trillion more. And, of course, George Bush, in his eight years in the presidency, added $5 trillion to the debt of our nation. But under the recent administration, in less than four years, they've added $10 billion. And it's going up faster and faster and faster. And, of course, our nation is going down. That kind of debt increase cannot be sustained. And most people understand that. We are in a terminal case of cancer, financial cancer, in the sense of our nation. And many things are happening to bring about what God has said, that he rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He rebukes and chastens every nation that turns away from God. And Almighty God is certainly going to humble us in many, many ways. And there no doubt will be food riots. There will be all kinds of job riots, other problems, starvation, disease, the things Christ said to happen would happen. And, of course, they're going to come about sometimes in a slightly different way than we have thought in the past. But certainly they are going to come about. So we're going to live through an awful lot of trials not in the next 20 or 30 years, but probably in the next 5 or 10 years, perhaps starting even later this year, because a lot of things are beginning to happen even yet this year. So by this time next year, there may be a lot more problems, and undoubtedly will be, than there are right now. Anyway, we have to realize that and know that we're here. James says our life is like a vapor. It's just like a little wisp of smoke. And we're here for a little while, and... We need God's help to be sure that we're doing the right thing and living the right way. In God's church, we had a lot of trials. The work is growing. He's blessed us. But we're having an awful lot of people that are really seriously ill. And I'm not going to name all of them here lest I leave some out. But there are eight or ten people that we know of just up and down the East Coast. When I'm praying on my prayer list, I usually start up north with... uh, Gloria Shumway ended up down south in the Caribbean with Mr. Uh, uh, anyway, our elder down there. First time my mind is blocked on that, even in my prayer. 
but we pray for him because he's had a serious kidney illness. And in between, of course, in Atlanta, we have Mrs. Jack Lowe, and who is dying of cancer, unless God heals her and many, many others. And in your bulletin, you read about my wife, who now has stage four cancer. Oh, our elder in the Caribbean is Fitzroy Greenman. I'm sorry, his name blocked in my mind. I've been under a little bit of stress, so I may forget my own name here. <laughs> but anyway, his name is Fitzroy Greenman. He's been here at headquarters a number of times, a very fine man, and he has a life-threatening kidney situation we certainly should be praying about. So dozens of our brethren are seriously ill that we know about, perhaps many others as well. What shall we do? What do we need? I think most of us realize, but I want to preach on that, and I'll say before beginning, I'm not going to be preaching on at every week from now on, but because of the situation, I really feel that I should do so on this particular Sabbath. And this is what God wants us to hear. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Sometimes we conclude with this, but I'm going to begin with this scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, and beginning in verse 35. He's talking to the older brethren in Jerusalem and in Israel who had been the pioneers in the early church of God. He says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you, after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. In other words, he's not going to wait forever. When he starts to come, it's going to come faster than many realize. Now the just shall live by faith. That's what God tells us a number of times in the Bible. It's not some peripheral doctrine. It's one of the major things throughout the Bible. Paul says in the very closing verses of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he says three things remain. Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, absolute trust in God. Hope. That attitude of positive outlook, personified perhaps or illustrated in Romans 8.28, where God tells us that all things work together for good, not for everybody. I've heard people in the world cite that everything works for good. No, it doesn't, in one sense, for carnal people. But all things work for good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, even the unconverted people may have things work for good in the sense that God is teaching all of us lessons. God has put us here on this earth for a purpose, and His ultimate purpose is to make us full sons of God, to live with God, with Christ, and with the spirits of just men made perfect throughout all eternity as full sons, full members of the God family. So we will interact with the God. We will interact with Jesus Christ and with the righteous men and women of the past throughout all eternity. Those spirit personalities now resurrected and members of the kingdom of God. He's made us in his image. He's given us creative imagination and understanding. He is working with us. He gives us the seasons. He gives us the sunshine and the rain. He gives us the food and the clothing. 
He gives us the air that we breathe. He even guides our thoughts if we cry out to Him. He teaches us lessons in this life that will last forever and ever and ever. And He's working with us to fashion and mold us and help us learn those lessons so we will be capable of living in His perfect kingdom, His family, throughout all eternity to love one another, to care for one another, to have compassion for one another, to enjoy one another, and to love and to really worship and obey our great Creator, our Heavenly Father, and live in harmony with our Maker and live in harmony with one another. He's working with us, teaching us these lessons for all eternity. He allows trials and tests to come upon us, to humble us, to shape us, to fashion and mold us. He allows sickness to come upon us, to humble us, to teach us lessons, to help us realize we're not here forever, and to draw us closer to Him. Many things like that, they're all in His will. So in that larger sense, He's working with all of us in that way. So he says here in this passage here, The just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe. We've got to believe. We've got to have faith to the saving of the soul. And all through the Bible, you read the book of Psalms. And it says, God will bless you, God will guide this man, and God will guide me and this man in this situation, because we put our trust in Him. Because this or that man or woman put their trust in God. Over and over, because they trusted in God. They believed that God was there. They believed that God was good, that He was right, that His way was right. That basic attitude of trust in God is one of the most basic important, fundamental things in the entire universe. And if we don't have that kind of faith, we will never be in the kingdom of God. We've got to come to love God, to know God, and to have that kind of faith. That's so important, and God wants us to have that. Notice now, brethren, in chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is called the faith chapter. I'd like to read it all, but I can't read all the chapters here, or I would be here all afternoon. And some of you might like that, but some of you might get tired. <laughs> Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And, of course, the margin says confidence or assurance. It is the assurance, if you have that absolute faith that God is there, you have proved by looking at the creation and seeing that this whole beautiful creation of interlocking and overlapping laws and systems could not exist without a creator. Who made your brain? Human beings think the computer is such a wonderful thing because the computers nowadays can actually spit out billions and billions of pieces of information per second. How awesome. But who made the computer? Little tiny men, little human beings on this earth made the computers. And how did they do that? Who made their minds so they could do that? There is a great creator God that gave us that kind of mind. 
and he is alive. He's the one that orchestrated these whole planets out there. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal the other day and had Monica file it. I should have brought that here today, but most of you read these articles recently. The scientists have now proved that there are more and more billions, not just of planets, but entire universes out there. There may be actually as many universes, in a sense, or at least solar systems, as there are human beings. So it is possible, I'm not saying this for sure, but it's possible that if we really overcome and grow, you and I might not just be a king over a priest over a city, or even over a planet, we might be a king or a priest over a whole solar system, or, or maybe a whole universe, so to speak. You can't imagine how big the universe is because they're beginning to find more and more and more with these tremendous new radio telescopes they have. It is awesome to realize the great God. It didn't just happen. God is there. And you can prove that. And, of course, you can prove that from prophecies. I've said the specific prophecies that God gave in his Bible, many that even I heard Mr. Armstrong recite over and over when I first came to Ambassador College 62 and a half years ago. He was talking about how God was going to take away the sea gates from Britain and America if we did not repent. If you folks are reading your newspapers, which I do maybe a lot more because it's part of my job, but almost every day you read about the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Hormuz. Most people didn't used to know where that was. Now they do because 20% of the oil from that part of the world passes through the Strait of Hormuz. And, of course, it's a very important choke point for international commerce and even time of war. Tremendously important. Whoever controls the Strait of Hormuz. And yet God gave it to Britain on both sides years ago, and now he's taken it away, like he said he would do, and like Mr. Armstrong said he would do when I heard him speak in Britain back in 1954. God took away the Suez Canal just two years after I heard Mr. Armstrong say specifically, you British will lose the Suez Canal if you don't repent. And then my wife Margie and I were sent over there two years later, and sure enough, that very winter it was taken away. And then we lost the Panama Canal, the only great sea gate we had, and all the rest of it. They're not vague, small things. They're major, specific things that only this church of God understood. That God is real. And that God in this book promises certain things. He says, if you will obey him, he will bless you, he will guide your life, he will give you eternal life. He also says, many are the afflictions of the righteous... But the Lord will deliver him out of them all. He doesn't say you'll just float into God's kingdom with no trials and tests. He never says that. He shows that you will be tried and tested. But he does say you will have eternal life. And he says you'll be healed if you come to him according to your faith, be it unto you. And we have not had the faith we have ought to have or even used to have in God's church. And most of you know that, and I preached on that. So we have to understand this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's your assurance, the evidence. It's your evidence of what? What you already see after you are healed, you don't need faith. You've already been healed. It's the evidence you're going to be healed. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have eternal life. And that evidence comes before the reality. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony, 
And by faith we understand that the worlds were framed. God did that by the things that are invisible. By faith Enoch was translated so he did not see death. God took him away from the bad guys who may have been wanting to kill him because he was a preacher of righteousness in a very terrible age. But without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God, I hope you all read and read and reread this over and over, he who comes to God must believe that he is. You've got to believe in a real God, and that he is a rewarder of those who carelessly, very seldom, seek him. No, it doesn't say that. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, who go after God with all their heart and all their soul and study the Bible and meditate on the Bible and pray on their knees, fast occasionally seeking God, and then ask God's help to exercise faith. As they exercise it, just like you exercise a muscle, faith grows because once you get this answer in this part of your life, and that answer in another part of your life, and this answer in another part of your life, your faith grows and grows and grows, and you have more faith. But you've got to do all those things to grow in faith. So this is faith, and you've got to have faith, or you cannot please God, and he makes that very plain. Now, brethren, Mr. Herbert Armstrong is the one that helped all of us understand the basic truths of the Bible in the beginning. And in his old booklet on faith, written way back in the 1930s, I had my secretary copy it off the Internet. In fact, that's the way she got it, I should say. What faith is. What is faith, Mr. Armstrong writes. The principal Bible definition is in Hebrews, and we've just read that, how it's the assurance of things that you do not already have. Once you have received the possession, you no longer hope for it. But even before you receive it, you have it in substance. And that substance, that assurance that you shall possess it, is faith. Then again, faith is an evidence, the evidence of things not seen, you see. So it's not seen yet. How to know you're healed. I want to know, you to notice, he writes, that when you hope for things, ask God for things, there's an evidence, a proof because evidence is proof uh, that you receive what you have asked for. And th what is that proof, that evidence? Is, the, is it the actual receiving of the answer so you see or feel or hear that you have it? Suppose, for instance, that you were ill. My wife is ill with cancer. Mrs. Uh, Bonjour is ill with cancer. And we're praying for her. Mrs. Stevenson is ill for cancer. Mr. Pyle is ill with cancer. And Mrs. Lowe down in Atlanta, we're praying for all of them and others. You ask God for healing. What is the proof that you're going to be healed? Is it the evidence of pain ceasing or the swelling going down? Something you can feel and see? I know a man who says, when I can see anyone healed by direct prayer, then I'll believe it. End quote. This man freely says he wants, this is a man he apparently knew up there in Oregon, he wants to believe it, he wants to have faith in it, he is looking for an evidence that he can see, and he has never seen it, and frankly I doubt whether he ever will, <laughs> because what, he, what we see, what we feel, is not the true evidence. 
having the same, having the thing, seeing it is not faith. Faith precedes. You see, faith precedes possession. You have faith before you get the answer. If you already have the answer, you don't have to have faith. Faith precedes the possession because faith is confidence, assurance. You shall possess it. So we have to have that understanding, brethren. Jesus said, These signs shall follow them that believe. And among them was this sign, They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Well, brethren, I don't have blind faith that God might heal the sick. I've told you over and over, and I don't want to wear you out. But how God healed Howard Clark, who sat right on this side of me when I was preaching on the, in the Shakespeare Club, sat in his wheelchair for six or nine years. Did he ever get to a hospital? Yet he better believe he went in the best Navy hospitals all over. He had terrible shrapnel wounds during the Korean War, was all shot up. He had the very best medical treatment they could give him. And he just sat there until Dick Armstrong anointed him with olive oil and prayed for him on the day of Pentecost, 1958. And when I came back from preaching in Chicago, I think it was Chicago that spring, this young man came out to pick me up from the college. And he said, Mr. Meredith, did you know that Howard Clark was healed? And I knew Howard Clark really well. I taught him. He sat in some classes. He was able to sometimes sit there and took them as an audit or something. And I'd been in his home, and I baptized him. I had to have two different men help me lift him out of his wheelchair and into the baptistry so we could baptize him. I knew him pretty well. He and I were the same age, and we kidded around. He had a wonderful sense of humor, even though he was all crippled up and couldn't even get out of the wheelchair. I said, What? I'd seen him sit there year after year after year after year. He's healed? He said, yeah, he's really healed. So I came in the next day, and I've told you about it, how Howard was sitting on the fender of his car. They used to have these old fenders and kind of grinning. And I said, Howard, I hear you're healed. And he had a good sense of humor. He knew I wanted to see him. And I said, you can walk? He says, you want to see me, don't you? I said, I sure do. So then he got up and clumped around. And he was then later stronger every single week until he walked normally and played handball. And either he or Dr. Zimmerman, I don't remember which one. I don't even worry about which one it was. They used to use their fists. They were both great big heavy men. And he got to where he was a pretty good handball player. And I was playing three-man handball with him. You know, it's a hard rubber ball, slightly smaller than a tennis ball, but hard. And I turned too soon, and one of them had hit it with his fist. They used to hit it with their fist, which made it even harder, and smash right in my eye. So that's where my first detached retina came from, courtesy of Howard Clark or, or, or Dr. Zimmerman. He was able to play handball. And as I say, I don't remember which one it was. I didn't even want to worry about it. I just thought, well, we were just playing a game. It was my fault to turn around too soon, and I, I didn't even try to... Get it all straight. We don't need to carry those things in our minds. But he did a lot. He was healed all supernaturally. Dennis Brady brought came in late to class. I've told you that too. And the freshman Bible. And then he stood outside to the classes over and said, Mr. Meredith, I wasn't in class. My little daughter's dying. I said, dying? What's wrong? Well, I had a little daughter, Elizabeth, back then. So I was very compassionate. He said, she's got the fatal variety of spinal meningitis, and she's having these convulsions and, and losing her strength, and, and she had high fever and is dying. 
And he said, would you come and anoint her? So I did. I had my secretary call and cancel some appointment or whatever I had. I went out with him and anoint his little daughter. And I prayed fervently for her because I had a little child like that too. And the, the, the shaking stopped and she sort of sat there and pretty soon she went to sleep and then I came on home. And the next afternoon his wife called and she said, Mr. Meredith, you know, Doreen or Gloria or whatever, I have no idea what her name was. The little girl said she went to sleep after I prayed for her. Her mother said she slept 14 hours <laughs> and she woke up completely well. The fever was totally gone. No more convulsion. She said, I'm hungry. And she hadn't been hungry before. And then she started playing. And then she came to church a few days later. We've had healing after healing after healing in the past, but we didn't have one every six months like that. I wish we had. I wish we had one every six days or what, six weeks. There been far and few between, but there have been many of them. Remember the story of the lady with the withered arm, just hung like a rope. And she came to see Raymond McNair and me on our tour. We baptized her. She had nothing to gain by telling us that. She wasn't asking for anything. She didn't hoop and holler. She was not Pentecostal. Her Baptist friend was with her. And I asked this other lady, as I said, I'm from Missouri. I always check up. Is it really happening? I wanted to know. Did you see her? You grew up with her, right? Yes, that was always like that. Yeah, that arm was just hanging like a rope. All of a sudden, she sent off to Mr. Armstrong for an anointed cloth. You read about that in Acts chapter 19, how God's ministers can anoint cloths as we do here and send them out. And right after that, that arm began to grow right out. And this woman was in her 40s or 50s. It had been there for decades like that. It grew right out. And she showed it to us. And her Baptist friend, who was not interested in the church, was not being converted, had no reason to lie. She said, that's right. She was moved. I could see that. She didn't understand it, but she knew it was real. God is real, and these promises in the Bible are real, and they will happen if we put our faith and trust in God. So we've got to have God heal our people and pray in faith. I won't read too much of this or I might take all the time here. I do want to read one specific thing, though, out of this booklet, a wonderful old booklet. Get it and read it if you can. He cites George Mueller. Some of you know George Mueller through Mr. Armstrong's writings. He was a very faithful, just Protestant man, but not a minister, just a lay Christian and he raised up five, I think, orphanages over in Bristol, England, when people were really in trouble and they were dying and children were dying and starving by faith. And he simply let people know, but he didn't send any letters or beg for money, and the money began to come and come and come. A tremendous example of faith. Here is George Mueller's definition of faith. Quote, faith is the assurance that the things which God said in his word are true, and that God will act according to what he has said in his word. This assurance, this reliance on God's word, this confidence is faith, end quote. Mr. Armstrong writes, that's George Miller's definition, and it is a true Bible definition. Romans 4.21, he quotes, And being fully persuaded that what he has promised, he was able also to perform. 
We have to know that, that what God has said in his word, he will do. And we've got to believe that. And I hope we can develop an attitude of faith, because, brethren, frankly, far too often, I've asked and toured in three different settings in the recent days, I asked some of our ministers and leaders at the uh, executive lunch a few days ago, isn't this true? Then I asked some of the young people in the office at the office lunchroom the other day, and one or two separately, isn't it true that, normally speaking, when you hear that someone has terminal cancer, or they have a very serious heart condition, or some terrible thing like AIDS, what do you assume? You pray for them. You hope that they might be healed, but you don't feel sure they will. You assume they'll probably die. Why? Because that's the way it's been most of the time for the last 40 or 50 years. That's why, I understand that, the faith began to be sucked right out of the worldwide church of God. And for many of you and me, to a certain extent too, it hurt all of us. After Mrs. Herbert Armstrong's death in 1967, things began to get worse and worse. I don't want to cite all of them, but things came out about problems in the ministry, in particular people's sins and problems. 1972 came and went, and the church did not flee. And one thing after the other, and people began to say, well, you know, we're not sure. The profound respect for the ministry that used to be there just evaporated. The faith in God that people used to have tended to just leave. It didn't totally leave, but it was very greatly diminished ever since that time. I saw it happen. I was one of the leading ministers. I saw it happen right before my eyes. That faith, that whole atmosphere of faith that we used to have that brought about so many of these healings has not ever come back. We're trying to restore that in the living church of God to the full extent that we will, that can. That's one reason I'm hammering away at it. Brethren, you need faith. You don't just need it because my wife is sick. You don't just need it for Mr. Pyle or Mrs. Shumway or anyone else. You need faith to get into the kingdom of God. The just shall live by faith. That faith can be expressed in your absolute assurance in doing what God said, even if you lose your job in keeping the Sabbath. It be expressed in doing what God said under persecution where you will not back down. It can be expressed in your knowledge that God is there and His way is right. And even if your wife throws a fit or your husband throws a fit, you are faithful to that mate. And you are loyal and you stay with them until death does you part. You build that faith. You do what God says regardless. It, it permeates every aspect of your life. Faith. You live by faith in a hundred different ways. So you've got to build faith not just for the people that are sick, but for every aspect of your life, it is indeed very, <clears throat> very important. So this attitude of faith is key to our relationship with God. Spiritual love, to know God, to love Him, to be grateful for Him who made us in His image, to make us His full sons, to worship and adore Him, that attitude then builds faith. 
And then as you learn to trust in that God, because you love him, you know is there, you trust him. Who does a little child trust? He loves his parents. They stand in place of God to him, a little tiny child. I remember once, I think, it, well, I better not say which one. He may say I was someone else. <laughs> my kids get me sometimes. But one of my first sons said, older sons, Mike or Jim, they said, Daddy, is God as big as you? <laughs> you know, I'm not very big. Is God as big as you? They, they saw you how big they thought I was. I was important in their sight. Very sweet, a childlike faith in their parents. And so they have that. And we ought to have that in God, that we have that awe of God, that the love of God. And so because your parents stand like that when you're a child, you will have childlike faith that daddy knows best. Mother knows best. And you will have that attitude. And then later that attitude can be ruined by Satan the devil in this world, of course. That love equals faith. And what does that faith then equal? Then what daddy or mother tell you to do, as long as you have that love and that faith, you will normally do what your parents say until again you get out in the world and get with other kids and begin to watch TV. But spiritual love equals faith equals obedience. Then you will do what God says. As it says in 1 John 5, verse 3, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. This is God's love in action. And that love is based on faith as well, that you know God is there and you love him. And so you will do what he says. You will keep his commandments. You have faith that he is love, that he is smart, that he is right, that he is good, that his commandments, his way of life works. So you will do what God says. All these things go together. And you've got to really understand it that way. Now, brethren, turn, if you would, back to the book of James. And I'm going to begin reading in James chapter 2. Read with me here in James chapter 2. And, uh, sorry, I'm going to get this where I can get to it. Beginning at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone have faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Also faith by itself, if it does not have works. You see, works and obedience are the same thing. Will you do what God says? Faith without works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will do what God says. You believe that there is one God? Lots of people say they believe in God. You do well. Even the demons believe. They don't have to be convinced. The devils, the demons, they were there. They saw God create this present earth. They saw Jesus die. They saw him resurrected. They know that. Just believing in Christ and his resurrection does not save anybody. They know that. And they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? By works or obedience, he believed God. And when he knew that that was absolutely God speaking to him, he was willing to do what God says unto the very end. Tremendous faith in God. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, brethren, that attitude of knowing that God is there, and the attitude of loving God, in the sense you know he's right, he's good, so you do what he says, that all ties together. That's what God wants. You believe he's there. You believe he's right. Therefore, you do what he says, and that is righteousness. So that's why it says Abraham believed God. He had living faith. He was willing to do what God says unto the uttermost. And so that faith was reckoned as righteousness. So that, of course, was what Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And what was he called? A wonderful statement because of that absolute trust in God. He was called the friend of God. Boy, I would love to be called a friend of God. I hope that I am. I might be already and don't know what I trust I am, but we don't know that. God has not spoken to us. You know, after Daniel had been through a whole series of things, it says three times right near the end, O man beloved of God, three different times near the last chapters of Daniel. So some of us are beloved of God, but he hasn't sent an angel yet to tell us that. So as we really try to walk with God, maybe God, we are beloved of God. Probably many of you here are. Maybe none of us have measured up to Daniel yet or David or Paul, but hopefully we are beloved of God to a degree. But he was called the friend of God. Chapter, here, here, verse 24. Notice this verse, brethren. This is something that Protestants don't like at all. I don't think they ever quote this. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. They were, well, that's awful. You know, to the Protestants, I mean. They don't like that. But anyway, they don't understand that, that you've got to do what God says. And that that attitude is love. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Paul, John said that right at the end of the Bible. Yet God tells us this back in James, the first chapter. James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Well, do you count it joy? I don't most of the time. I've got to work on that, you know, but we should. We say, God is testing me, he's testing me, he's testing me, and it's going to work out for good. All of you need to do that. Count it all joy when you fall into the various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... You need to have wisdom in how you apply these things. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. That's the key, brethren. Don't just ask in hope. You've got to read this book. You've got, you remember back in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. 
which means also, of course, reading it and, and having it explained to you, studying it, all that kind of thing. Faith comes by this word as you read the examples of the Bible, as you read the Bible and see the mind of God just absolutely stamped in this book. It can give you more and more faith because this is the revelation of the mind of God. It's the revelation of the way God is, the way God thinks, the way God acts. And so you have to read it and study it and go over and feed on Christ. There's a good example in Halley's, or Haley, I don't remember is it correct, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Most people say Haley, but say most of you know that Bible handbook. Very wonderful little handbook, H-E-H-A-L-L-E-Y. Haley's Pocket Bible Handbook, very helpful. But in one little section in there where there's giving inspirational stuff, it, it tells about Dwight L. Moody, the old famous Protestant evangelist. Now, these Protestant evangelists are not called. I know that they don't know the whole truth, but some of them are very sincere, and they've learned certain things, and I think what he said there is very true. So I'd like to say amen to this. He said, I prayed and prayed and prayed for faith, and faith never came. Then I opened the Bible and began to read it, and then faith grew, and it's been growing ever since. So you don't want to just pray. You'd better pray and study. You see, if you just pray out of your own imagination, you don't know fully what you ought to be praying about. You've got to drink into this book that shows you who God is, what God is, what God has promised, what God is like, what is the mind of God, feed on it, then you know how to pray. So as you study, and I don't mean carelessly read, I mean to study this book. Read it slowly, mark it, think about it ingest it, digest it, make it part of your being, then meditate on it, think about it. When I was first being called, as I told you, uh, I was on the third floor of Mayfair, the dormitory. I remember sitting there marking my old King James Bible, and I learned a system where I would read two or three chapters of Romans or Matthew or whatever I was reading, and I'd have my red and blue pencil, red on one end and blue on the other, and I'd mark normal things in blue, and the most important things in red. And I marked it too much, everything important, you know, so you got to mark it all up, where you could hardly read it after a while. But I marked it. So I would read it slowly and mark it, and then I would learn to go over it. I'd read and even help teach a course on on, uh, success in college and how you read and review. So I would go back and review the three chapters, let's say, that I'd read at the end of the Bible study period for just six or eight minutes, go over what I'd marked in the highlights to stamp it in my brain again. Then the next day, I would go back over those three chapters and review it again. So I got at the original study, then I got it the second time at the end of the study by reading my highlights, and then the next day I skimmed over it and read the highlights again. Then I'd read three more chapters of Romans and mark them and so on through the whole Bible. Then I began to understand it. It made sense. You're reading these verses in context. Now, subject study is good, too, but you learn to expound the Bible better if you read it in context. Read the whole book, not just bits and pieces here and there. You see the mind of God flowing through this author, the mind of God flowing through James, John, Peter, and the Apostle Paul, and so on, the writers of the Gospels. 
And it becomes part of the way you think and the way you are as you feed on God. And then you have faith. You see it worse. You see how you can just see there's nothing else like that. I had a whole course in philosophy in my first year in Missouri Southern, and it was foolish. I studied the writings of Tacitus and Cicero and Aristotle and, and you know, all those old philosophers and then others in between. Some of the more modern philosophers. I could see it was a bunch of gobbledygook more quickly than most because then at night I would go over to Uncle Paul's house and hear Mr. Armstrong on the radio talking about the real God, the God of the Bible, and I compared the two and so on. But then I could see the Bible was so far ahead of anything those men had, there's not even any comparison. And I hope all of you will learn to do that. Many of you have, I know. So God has got to become very real to you, and so you've got to have faith. Ask God for wisdom, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Verse 6, for he who doubts, notice, brethren, is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Are you a double-minded man or woman? You sort of believe God, and yet you're not sure, and then you study the Bible for 10 minutes or 15, and then you spend four hours watching television, and you're in this make-believe world, so God doesn't really mean much. He's just a tiny little sliver of your life. He's not the main thing in your life. You're filling your mind with everything but the Bible. Of course God doesn't seem very real if you do that. So to build faith, you've got to feed on the Bible and cut back on television and movies and all that other stuff, which is often just stupid stuff, as most of you know. So you've got to learn not to be double-minded. As I say, brethren, even in the church, when we say someone has fatal cancer, terminal cancer, we say, well, I guess they're going to die. We will pray for them, but we sort of suppose they're going to die. Why should we think that? If we believe this book, our supposition should be, from now on, they are going to be healed, and we will be so unpleasantly surprised, we will be deeply hurt if they're not be healed, but because we believe and we pray with that kind of faith, God heal them, we expect you to, we want you to, we need you to, then we would be surprised if they're not healed. We won't be mad at God if they're not healed. We must never give up on God, as I'll explain, because God does not promise to heal every single person of everything, and he does not promise to heal everyone in this life. He will heal all of us in the resurrection, as Mr. Armstrong explained. But the vast majority of the healings in the New Testament were very quickly done, and they were healings in this life. They were healings in this life, and that's the promise of God, and God is not a liar. So God does have exceptions, and you can see that. But your expectation, not just a vague hope, but your absolute faith should be that God will heal, and you'll be mildly shocked, sincerely so, if God does not heal. And that ought to begin to be the atmosphere of faith that we create in the church of God. This malaise, this doubting, this cynicism, this lack of faith began to come in more than ever in the late 1960s, during and after the time of Mrs. Armstrong's death, and it got worse and worse as time went on. We've got to get back to the real attitude of faith. 
and I hope that all of us can do that. Watching the time here, let's go now, brethren, to Luke chapter 18. Here is one you're probably familiar with, but we do need to read it quite often. Luke chapter 18. It says here in verse 1, Christ spoke a parable that men always ought to pray. Do you pray a great deal all through the day, off and on? Maybe not great long prayers, but just a short prayer for 30 or 60 seconds, and then in the morning and at night and at noon when you can on your knees. They always ought to pray and not to faint. He tells about the unjust judge. The woman kept coming, and he didn't want to hear her. He, she was boring him. This old lady wanted some little thing he didn't have much concern about. But she kept coming and kept coming. And finally, this judge said, by her continual coming, she'll wear me out. So I better hear her. And he finally did. And so Jesus said, in effect, how much more will God hear us if we keep coming and keep coming and keep coming to God? Pour our hearts out to God. Please heal Mrs. Shumway. Please heal Mrs. Lowe. Please heal all these people and cry out for that. Hear what the unjust judge says, and notice in verse 7, And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out to him night and day, though he bears long with them? Who are the elect? They're the ones who cry out night and day to God. The elect are the ones who go after God with you know, their whole being, crying out to God night and day. I tell you what he will do. He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Indicating that at the time of the end, God knew there'd be all these movies. God knew there would be all this Internet stuff. God knew that the young people in our society could just push a button. And suddenly, right in their home or their bedroom or living room, they're seeing naked people. They're seeing gross sex acts performed. They're seeing unspeakable violence. Just weird things that most of us older people never saw or never dreamed of. All my gang and I could do would be to go to the movie on Saturday afternoon and see Hopalong Cassidy chasing the Indians, you know. And at the end, he would kiss the horse. He didn't kiss the girl. You know, I'm kidding, but there wasn't any sexy romance going on. But now it's such a different world. It's so hard. It's so hard. It gets our minds off God and the reality of God and so on. The society has changed so dramatically in that way. So we have got to grow in faith. We've got to rebuild the faith that used to be in God's church. And frankly, we ought to go be above and beyond whatever was in God's church. I'm not putting Mr. Armstrong down. He would want us to. He'd say, of course, Rod, you've got to grow. We've got to get back closer to God than we have ever been. Brethren, I don't have this in my notes, but I want to turn, uh, think where it is. It's in Mark uh, why should we expect God's true ministers to have a lot of power? Well, turn to Mark uh, chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, it's the, uh, it's the chapter uh, about the end of the age that Matthew 24 and Luke 21 describe as well. So Jesus is talking about the final events of this world's history and I think most of you know this. If you doubt it, look it up in your Bible. Every time 
where God's allowed false ministers, pharaohs, magicians, or anyone else, you know, or bad guys in the New Testament or anywhere to perform miracles, he allowed his true ministers to perform as great or greater miracles right then. That's a pattern in the Bible. Here it says in Mark 13, talking about these coming days, he says, for in those days, Mark 13, verse 19, verse 19, in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world to this time or since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time. That's powerful. It's going to be such a horrible time. It will be worse than any time since God created the earth until this time. No nor ever shall be. We can say, well, what about the flood? Everyone died. Well, everyone died except eight, but how many were alive in the first place? Just a few million. Now there's seven billion human beings, and most of those folks died how? The waters rose, they drowned very quickly. The thing didn't go on and on and on and on for three and a half years with torture camps, all kinds of terrible things going on over and over all over the world. It was sudden death almost, much easier than what's going to happen today. God tells back in Isaiah 59, the first few verses, he said, The righteous, you know, who die, some of our righteous brethren have died and will die. He said, The righteous are taken away from the face of evil. All you older people are not going to live till Christ comes. I may not live till Christ comes, and I don't want any of you younger people to fall away because of that. God never promises that you or I will all live to be 90 or 100 or 200 years old. You know that. He says the days of man are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80, then it's sorrow and trouble and so on. So he does not promise all of us that we're going to live a long time. Some of our brethren, brethren, (laughs) will die in their 60s, in their 70s, and in their 80s. And that's not strange. Some don't quite make it to age 70. We've had quite a number of our brethren die in the past in their mid-60s. And we have had some of our people even now, without naming my wife is like that, she's in her mid-60s. And I think Mrs. Bonjour and Mrs. Lowe will not be mad. I think that's about where they are. I don't know their exact age. They're not all 70 yet, but they're getting close. So God lets us to live about 70 years He doesn't let everyone, it's not some iron clan promise that if you live to be 69 and then you're really ill and you rush to the minister and get anointed, then you get 10 more years. And then you're 79 and you get six and you rush to the minister just in time and then you get 10 more years. And then when you're 89, you get the point. He doesn't keep you going forever. My son's... All four of them are very human, as some of you may have figured out. And uh, they they can tell me things that other people don't tell me. My son Michael uh, was called the other day. He and I were talking a week or two ago, and he's a businessman down in Florida. And he kind of kidded me. He meant it kiddingly, but partly sincere, too. He deals with big companies and important businessmen. And he says, Dad, when I go to headquarters, he meant not all of you necessarily, but I was at the office and Probably many of you, too. He said, 
He said, it's kind of like going to an old folks home. I said, Mike, watch that. <laughs> and so, you know, so a lot of us are getting old. Now, as I look out here, Mr. and Mrs. Murray, I don't think they'll shoot me and Mrs. and Mrs. McNaughton. And they're not in their 20s or 30s anymore. And my wife and I are not in our 20s or 30s anymore. And some of us are getting old. I don't want to get a punch, but even Mr. Punch here, he's not getting. I say, are you ready to punch? <laughs> he's, all of us are getting old. God is not necessarily bound to keep healing us up until we're 100 years old. So I want to make that clear. Some of the greatest men of God, such as Isaac, you know, was fooled by Jacob and Esau, and he couldn't even see which one was Jacob and which was Esau. He was a patriarch, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How come God didn't heal Isaac? Well, he was getting old. He wasn't a big sinner. He's regarded as one of the patriarchs. So let the Bible interpret the Bible. Figure it out. He doesn't heal everyone all the time, especially if they're getting old. But we can ask God to heal more than ever for those of us who are not yet 70 and for those of us who are younger and beseech God and expect in many cases that God would heal in the vast majority of cases. He should heal and everything in the Bible indicates he would heal. And so we've got to grow in faith and build an atmosphere of faith in God's church. Remember back in Mark, the sixth chapter, and I commented on that in my last sermon, but I want to remind you of this continually so you don't ever give up on God. You understand the principle. Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter six. Notice what it says here. He came back home to Nazareth, and they were asking here in verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters? So we know that Mary was not the Virgin Mary. She had at least seven children. She had at least four sons who were named, and sisters. There might have been four or five of them, but at least sisters, plural, so at a minimum, plus Jesus, so she had at least seven children. She was not the Virgin Mary once she had Jesus, and once she and Joseph came together after that time. They were offended at him. But Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. You know, you come back home and you're just old dad or you're just old Joe that grew up there and they don't have the same respect for you among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he, who was he? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. But if you look up the companion verse that is inspired of God that gives the other detail back in Matthew, and turn back there with me to Matthew 13, Back in Matthew chapter 13 and 58, he's been saying about talk, describing the same incident. And it says in verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their, not his unbelief, but their unbelief. That is specifically why these people had an atmosphere of doubt. They had an atmosphere of cynicism. They weren't sure they were double-minded. Well, God could heal, but we're not sure he will. 
We've got to, brethren, build that attitude and say, we have prayed, we've fasted, this person is not 90 years old or whatever, and there's every reason to feel that God would heal him or her. They're under 70, and there are a lot of reasons. I frankly feel that God will heal my wife, Cheryl. I really mean that. No, I'm prejudiced. I know that. He did not heal my first wife, Margie, probably because, partly because of this thing right here. Partly because of this thing right here. She got her cancer right during the great falling away that began during the mid-70s. The magazine came out, Time Magazine, Where Are You, Garner Ted? The rebellion on the East Coast in 1974. These rebellious ministers rose up and took out 30 ministers and 3,000 brethren. A whole attitude of spiritual malaise. The liberals came in, were pushing Mr. Apartin and Dr. Hay and Raymond Manier, and they were pushing the old-timers out, trying to get rid of us at that time. That happened. Mrs. Apartin will remember that time, I'm sure. Mr. Apartin was very distressed. He and I were good friends, and we saw it happening right in front of our eyes. This attitude was there. Some of these guys crouched down, and then when Mr. Armstrong died, they suddenly rose back up again, took over the church, plus the younger guys, Mike and Joe, joining them, leading them. And then they did what they started to do in the 70s, but ten times worse, and changed everything, which they were starting to do in the mid-70s. An attitude of doubt, of cynicism, a put-down of Mr. Armstrong. I remember in the... Uh, I came back from Britain and, and uh, June 19, 1978. I mean, in 1975. And I came into the doctoral team, led by some very terrible characters. And they were making fun of Mr. Armstrong right on the campus. And they started to put him down. And so I got right in their face. They were had a higher office at that time, but I didn't care. I taught them. I thought, well, I need to teach these guys again. <laughs> so I said, you guys don't talk like that. That old man is sitting up there in his office. This was down in the administration annex in the, in the uh, editorial area in this room. And Mr. Armstrong had his office, you know, uh, up in the hall of administration across the street, across the freeway. And I said, you don't put him down like that. He is God's apostle, and he taught us the truth. How dare you? Well, blah, blah, they kind of made fun of me. One of them had a very good sense of humor, which made him fun in a social situation, but he could really spear you with it and made sarcasm, and he tried to put me down. And finally, the, the discussion got so strong that one of the big guys started to hit me and was all mad and so on. And then Robert Kuhn heard about it. He was Ted's assistant at that time running the work. So he simply closed down the doctoral team and had us send papers around so someone didn't get hurt. <laughs> but that was the atmosphere when my wife died of cancer, my first wife. Faith had gone, and they had an attitude of cynicism against Mr. Armstrong, against the truth, against the whole way of God during that time. Now we've tried to rebuild that. And with God's help, most of you know that we deeply, fervently believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God, God's government on this earth based on the Ten Commandments. We deeply, fervently believe the whole way of God, that we're to live by every word of God. 
We believe in the prophecies of the Bible, our identity as Israel and how important that is. We believe in the whole way of life. We honor what God did through Mr. Armstrong very deeply and profoundly, those of us who work with him and really knew the real Mr. Armstrong. And we carry on the work. But now we've rebuilt faith to a degree, but brethren, we've got to build it a lot stronger because some still have been deeply hurt by that and have never regained that just that childlike faith. As I told you a few weeks ago in the sermon, there used to be a whole bunch of people lined up 30 or 60 or 100 at Big Sandy. They had a group of chairs going down the little aisles in these little back offices, and they'd sit in the chairs and move closer and closer. And in one little counseling and anointing room would be Herman, he, and me, and the next one, Raymond McNair and Uncle Paul, and the next one would be two others. We had three or four of those, and they'd move forward. We had person after person that would be healed, blessed, helped, over and over and over. It was just automatic. And they knew that, an atmosphere of faith. God is working through the ministry. God is working through His church. That deep faith has been terribly damaged. And I hope all of you will pray about that and try to rebuild it. That's one reason people were not healed back then. So I think that their atmosphere of faith has been partly rebuilt. And I think that my wife is so needed to help me. Back then I could... I could, I was only 45, I was five days below my 46th birthday, so I was young enough to take care of myself, young enough to remarry, which I did do a beautiful young woman who helped me and cooked for me and took care of the house and took care of my little daughter Rebecca and helped me keep going. And now I'm old enough I can't do that. If I tried to court some woman, she'd probably get a broom and shoo me off. <laughs> you old coot, you know what I mean. And so I need help. I need my wife to help me, and I need the help that Cheryl can provide in a way no one else can, and God knows that. He knows that. So there are a number of us who have that. I'm sure Mr. Bonjour feels the same way, and Mr. Jack Lowe feels the same way, all in the ministry. We need our wives, and we, we are, we're at a point in life it's more difficult to start over. So I hope all of you will realize that and pray that God will help us to carry on the work, that God will heal these beautiful wives that we have. They might not be beautiful to you young men, but they're beautiful to us. <laughs> Whenever I think of my wife, I think of that time she came up after church. You know, I've told you that story. And the beautiful eyes came up to me and, and so on, her long, beautiful brown hair and and, and said, Dr. Meredith, I love you. That sermon was so good. So the first five words will all I remember. But anyway, <laughs> and, and all the other things. And her shining eyes, as she would, I would take her out on dates up in Bakersfield. It seemed like the moon was shining every night that summer and so on. But anyway, he knows we have a greater need now, many of us, and we need God's healing and we need God's intervention and so I pray that God will grant us that, and we need to all pray that so many of these others we don't know about. We've got people all around the world, and they're not all 90 years old. A lot of them are just in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they do need healing, but we need to rebuild the atmosphere of faith. So Jesus came back home, and he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. This attitude of doubt is a destroyer, of course, of healings and miracles. But brethren, should we give up? 
If God doesn't heal someone, of course not. I didn't give up when God did not heal my first wife. I just knew maybe it was a lesson for me. She didn't have any bad thing wrong that I knew about at all, and I mean that. But I just thought God is testing me, and God is allowing that for whatever purpose. Remember Second Corinthians, turn back there if you would with me, Second Corinthians, uh, brethren, chapter 12. And here Paul is describing himself, and he says, And lest I, Second Corinthians 12, verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He describes some tremendous revelations he had obviously had. A thorn in the flesh was given, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He said, I besought God three times. I prayed fervently about this three different times. Oh, God, help me, heal me. Three times, the Apostle Paul. But God didn't do it. He said, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So God helped Paul to be even more fervent and maybe more humble by allowing this thing to come on him, whatever it was. And so God allows a people to go on. He does not heal every time, but if he does it, brethren, remember, that's not the rule. The rule is that God heals. The exception is that once in a while, for a good reason that God knows, he does not heal, and that should be regarded as the exception, not the rule. Do you get it? That's the exception. The rule is that God heals. All right, let's go now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and here in uh, verse 25, Paul writes, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, they'd sent Epaphroditus to help Paul, and brought him a lot of money, apparently, and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So here is a man who was obviously a minister. Everything in the Bible indicates he was probably at least an elder. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. Does God let a minister get a serious sickness where he could die? Of course he does. Remember, Elijah died. I mean, Elisha and he died of a certain sickness, it says. He didn't just die of old age of a sickness. But God showed Elisha was an okay guy because later, remember, they buried, they put this dead body down there, and then the body came alive. For indeed he was sick unto death, but God had mercy on him. He didn't say God had to heal him and it had been a catastrophe and break God's word if he didn't heal him. No, Paul did not say that. He said God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So I will have sorrow upon sorrow if God does allow Cheryl to die. And Mrs. Mr. Bonjour, the same with his wife and Mr. Lowell and Mr. Shumway up north and all the others about our mates. And I think the vast majority of these people will be healed if we cry out as a church and follow through on this fast and say, God, show us. Give us some encouragement right now and cry out to God as the church of the living God. He does have mercy, and I know that he will heal. 
Now, brethren, turn back here in 2 Corinthians again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and notice beginning here in verse 16. Therefore, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. We must not ever give up, even though our outward man is perishing. Yes, we're all getting old and dying. Not all of us, but many of us. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. The inward man, we're being strengthened by God. For our light affliction, it's nothing compared to what people who went through in the Holocaust where they were tortured to death and then burned in a gas oven and all the other stuff. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, we focus our mind on the living God. We focus our mind on His promises. He has promised to give us eternal life if we live by His commandments. He has promised to heal us if we have faith in Him. And we should know that the vast majority of those who do that will be healed and build that attitude of faith, and then, in fact, they will be healed. We look at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he goes on. We often stop there. Let's go on. For we know that if our earthly house, this body, brethren, your body, my body, we're all getting older, bit by bit, this tent is destroyed, if we die, we have a building from God. It's not up in heaven, it's from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God is making it, preparing that up there for us. For in this we groan, we cry out for that spirit body, that God will take our lowly body, as it says at the end of Second Philippians chapter 2, and give us a glorious body. We groan, praying to God, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is not in heaven, it says, but from heaven. It's made, and God has that planned in heaven, but it's from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. We're not going to be bereft of life at all. For we who are in this tent, this temporary body, this physical flesh we have now, groan. We do cry out. I know I've talked to you older people. A lot of you really wish with all your hearts you had a spirit body. And I do too as we get older. It becomes very real. We groan. Uh, if I can see where I am here in my physical body. Uh, we groan. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Brethren, if you have help from God, if after you've deeply repented and accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your Lord and Master, your High Priest, your Living Head, you sense you get extra help from God. It doesn't come powerfully all at once necessarily, but after six months or a year you'll sense, as I did at least, you have help you never had before. Extra strength from God. A purer mind. Help from God in so many ways. That is the guarantee. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee, showing He is there. 
and he will give you that spirit body. Therefore, we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're in this flesh, we're absent from the Lord. Eventually, we ought to be want to be with the Lord, as Paul said back in Philippians, the second chapter. We're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith. That's our goal, brethren. You've got to learn to do it. We walk by faith, not by sight. So I encourage you, I pray for you, I exhort all of you, and I hope that you will heed this. I love you, and God loves you, that he wants you to learn to know that he is real, that he's there, his promises are real, the things that he has said in this book will happen. If you let Scripture interpret Scripture, it does not mean he has to heal everybody every time to heal them all until they're up to 90 or 110 years old. But overall, he will heal the vast majority of those who come to him based on our faith and based on an atmosphere of faith in his church. Let's build that atmosphere. Let's go after God with all of our heart, all of our being, all of our soul, and cry out to God for greater faith and beseech God to heal these dear people that we know and many others we do not know and have faith that God will do what he has said that he will do.